Very good morning. As always, it's a joy and privilege to be here with you as we worship the Lord and reflect on His Word as a church community. Let's commit this time to the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been following the uh, church Bible plan as a, you know, just since the beginning of the year, and it's been uh, quite encouraging to know that quite a number of us here are keeping, are keeping to the schedule. And if you have been keeping up with the reading plan, you would have uh, encountered the Gospel of Mark yesterday. Or if you are a few days behind, you're going to uh, be coming to Mark quite soon. And so for today, I'd like to um, perhaps give us a general introduction uh, to the Gospel of Mark as a whole and try to use the theme of the new wineskins as a way to understand the overall message and emphasis of this gospel. So I'll try to give you a little bit of extended introduction and, and try to go through uh, quite quickly uh, some points of uh, application as we read the gospel of Mark together. Now, by way of introduction, all four gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, presents Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets in the Old Testament. God promised that he will come back to his people to forgive them and restore the nation after the devastation of invasion and exile at the hand of foreign empires. Now, this devastation had come about as a result of Israel's sin and rebellion against God through idolatry and alliances with foreign gods and powers. But God, in his mercy and compassion, had promised that he would restore the nation and the prophets foretold a time of renewed blessings and abundance of life under God when he comes back to his people. For example, both Joel and Amos describe this time of abundance in terms of the mountains dripping with new wine and the hills flowing with wine and milk. The prophets also foretold that in the time of God's restoration, he will raise up an anointed king, a new king from the line of David who will reign in righteousness. And it was this expectation that gave rise to the hopes of the Messiah, the anointed one who would come and save Israel from her enemies and usher in this time of renewal and abundance. And so when Mark opens up his book with the bold proclamation that this is the gospel, that is, this is the good news, the royal pronouncement of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, Mark is saying that the Old Testament hopes of God's time of forgiveness and renewal had at last begun. God's anointed king had indeed come to usher in the reign of God's kingdom over and against the dark powers that held the people in bondage and despair. Mark's gospel then sets out to tell us how Jesus brought about the fulfillment of God's kingdom here on earth through his life and particularly through his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection in wholly unexpected ways. Yes, God has acted to redeem his people and yes, the Messiah had come and yes, the time of God's renewal and abundance is already a reality, but not in the ways the people might have expected. You needed fresh minds 
and open hearts to receive and understand what God is doing and how He is bringing about His kingdom. You need new wineskins of faith and understanding to grasp who Jesus really is and what He requires. Otherwise, as Jesus says as you read through Mark, otherwise you will be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. And so as we read the book of Mark, we are invited to journey with Jesus and his first disciples as he went about doing the works of the kingdom and bringing in the promised deliverance and restoration of God's people. Mark's gospel in particular is a fast-paced narrative, a narrative drama of the life of Jesus. In contrast, Matthew's and Luke's gospel are much longer in length and contain more elaboration of Jesus' teaching and extended theological reflection about the meaning of his life. But Mark's primary insight into the life of Jesus is based extensively on where he went and what he did. One of the key characteristics of Mark's gospel is the sense of urgency in the life and ministry of Jesus at the start of his earthly ministry around the Sea of Galilee, that's the northern part of Israel. And this you can find from chapters 1 to 8 as you encounter these chapters in the coming week. When you first read these first chapters, you encounter action-packed sequences of places that Jesus goes and uh, what he did, the acts of healing and miracles he performs. And frequently, you will come across phrases like, immediately, Jesus did this. At once, the disciples obeyed. For example, at once, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. At once, the, Jesus, uh, the disciples left their nets and their boats to follow Jesus. Immediately, Jesus does something or goes somewhere. For Mark, there is a sense of urgency because the window of opportunity to respond to God's kingdom invitation to his son Jesus is critically short. The time window before the enemies of Jesus moved in, moved in to silence him, was fast closing. The nation, as it were, was heading to a critical juncture of his relationship with God. On Jesus hangs the fate and destiny of God's people, depending on how they responded to him. All these action-packed sequences of events is leading to the critical pivotal, the critical point of Jesus' challenge to call true disciples to his kingdom. This, this whole part about discipleship, the true nature of discipleship, will be found if you read on to between chapters 8 and 10, where Jesus defines what true discipleship entails. And I'll come back to this in a while. The second half of Mark's gospel then comes to to the dark shadow of the cross as Jesus enters Jerusalem, starting from chapter 11. From this point on, the action slows down to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of the final week of Jesus before his trial and crucifixion. For Mark and the rest of the gospel, the whole weight of history and God's redeeming love for the world comes down to the final week of Jesus' earthly life as he faces the cross. 
In fact, for Mark, it is impossible for us to truly know God and His love until we have followed His Son to the cross and watched Him sacrificially give Himself up for the ransom of many to save those who put their hope and trust in God. The breathless pace of the first half of the gospel comes to a, the solemn and dark shadow of the cross in the second half of the gospel. This is your king, full of power and might, becoming a suffering servant because it was the only way for God's redeeming love to penetrate and heal the sinful rebellion and the hardness of human hearts. Now, as you read this fascinating life, real-life drama of, of Jesus, of the life of Jesus, there are three key groups of people you will encounter. The crowds, the religious leaders, and the disciples. One of the compelling reasons to study Mark is that the gospel invites you, as the reader, to step into the shoes of the crowd, of the religious leaders, and of the disciples as they grapple with the challenge and meaning of Jesus. The crowds, on the whole, were genuinely fascinated with Jesus. They were utterly amazed by His power and authority over sickness and evil spirits. But will they see the signs of His power only for their immediate needs, or will they press on to actually follow Him and learn from Him as a disciple? How many of the, those in the crowd were truly come to Jesus and start to follow him as a disciple. The religious authorities should have known they were in the best position to know and discern the truth of Jesus, but they were mainly hostile to Jesus. They were the supposed experts and teachers of the scripture, and surely some of them were sincerely zealous for God's law, but yet as a whole they reacted with hate instead of faith. What was it about Jesus that offended them and threatened them, that they moved to betray him to the Roman authorities and have him killed? As we grapple with the, the perspective of the religious authorities, we might find that certain commands and demands of Jesus might be offensive to us as well. And then, Lastly, and most importantly for us, we step into the shoes of the disciples. Jesus spends a lot of intimate and private moments with his disciples to teach them and show them his ways and show them his heart. The disciples experienced Jesus in ways that were not available to the crowds and certainly not to the religious elite. And it is here that we are most compelled to step into their shoes and live through their eyes and hearts how they saw and heard Jesus when he healed the sick, when he drove out the demons, how he calmed the storm when they thought they were about to drown, including how Jesus often rebuked them for their lack of faith and understanding. It seems that Mark is trying to show us that even the first disciples were full of human weakness and imperfect knowledge. They often stumbled in their knowledge of Jesus and blundered in their service to Him. And it is perhaps some comfort, measure of comfort to us to know that the first disciples were far from perfect 
But most importantly, they persevere to follow Jesus right up to the end. This leads us to the pivotal point of Mark's Gospel in chapter 8, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? This is the critical question that Mark has been building up to. All the works and miracles point to the identity of who who Jesus really was and is. For the crowds, he is a powerful prophet and miracle worker, and for some, perhaps even the Messianic king, who will win the victory over their foreign enemies, namely the Romans. The religious authorities without doubt considered Jesus a false prophet and a blasphemer, a genuine troublemaker who could mislead the crowds and bring on a harsh response from the Roman authorities. For the disciples, they had begun to realize that Jesus is something more than a mere human teacher or prophet, but yet retain incomplete or misguided expectations of Jesus the Messiah. In uh, Mark chapter 8, Peter, as the chief disciples would, as usual, be the first to answer and say, yeah, Jesus, you are the Messiah, but then have misplaced expectations because when Jesus says he's about to go to Jerusalem to die and to be raised on the third day, Peter objected to that prediction. Jesus, uh, Peter was um, offended that Jesus, uh, as the Messianic king, would allow himself to be humiliated and shamed at the hands of, of sinners and Roman authorities. To fully experience and know Jesus, then, is to journey to the cross with Jesus. And that entails putting to death our own ambitions, attitudes, and expectations. This is true for the crowds, the religious leaders, and for the disciples themselves. This is where we must leave behind our old wineskins, so to speak, and embrace what Jesus is giving us with new wineskins of renewed faith and open hearts. The passage in Mark chapter 2, very briefly in our scripture reading today, describes an increasing series of confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. The religious authorities comprising mainly of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were entrenched in their own interpretations of God's word and in many, and, and basically, in many situations, they have added in a lot of additional regulations that they impose on people, how one should live faithfully to God. They were then the guardians of religious life and the enforcers of strict codes of uh, conduct that regulated how faith should be lived out. But their way of life and strict regulation could not cope with the vibrant joy and newness of life that Jesus brought into the life of the people. They could tell people to wash their hands and fast for religious purity, but Jesus actually healed the people and delivered them from what kept them from God. The Pharisees were quick to condemn and write off those who did not or could not keep, could not keep up with their religious requirements. But Jesus actually went out to embrace them and had fellowship meals with them. The Pharisees and their followers had religious zeal. But the followers of Jesus, 
seem to have joy and exuberance in following him. Some people challenge Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus said, how can they fast when the bridegroom is with them? The old wineskins of religious thought and practice insisted on somber and soulful discipline, which, of course, is required at certain times and seasons of our faith. But for the followers of Jesus, it is overwhelmingly a time of living hope and inexpressible joy, although they too would encounter dark days ahead of them in the shadow of the cross. But for now, the Pharisees and their followers were having a fast while the disciples of Jesus was having a feast, a wedding celebration in the atmosphere of joy and hope that Jesus brings. Something had dramatically changed in the religious atmosphere, but the Pharisees and their followers found themselves left out cold. Worst of all, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus seems to override or at least put aside some of their strict regulations concerning religious observance and purity. For example, when the, uh, the disciples were traveling with Jesus, the disciples felt free to pick up grains to eat even on the Sabbath and act considered as prohibitive work, prohibited work by the religious leaders. But Jesus exerts authority easily over these traditional rules and narrow interpretations of God's law by ushering in a new age of God's kingdom, a kingdom that frees the human spirit and meets the yearning of the human soul for a relationship in God, with a relationship with God in ways that restrictive regulation or religious authorities could not do. For Jesus, the coming of God's kingdom signals a radically different approach to life with God that cannot accommodate the old rules of the past. You cannot mix two approaches to life with God. Jesus uses the example of trying to sew in new unshrunk cloth to patch an old garment. If you wash the whole garment, the new patch will tear the garment as it shrinks. In the same way, we, you couldn't put new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins at that time were made of goat skin, and while they were quite stretchable, older wineskins tend to be already stretched to the limit, so to speak. And so when new wine with all of its fermenting vibrancy is poured into the old wineskins, the gas that is produced by fermentation will burst the skins apart, spilling the new wine. New cloth and new wine have a vibrant force in them that old material would not be able to handle. Jesus seemed to be saying that the new way of faith and living with God that he is bringing cannot be simply added to the old way of life that the religious leaders taught and held on to. Jesus ushered in a new way of being God's people in ways that challenged and overturned the old rules that kept people from experiencing the new life that God intended for them. In application, then, we can explore three perspectives 
as we read through the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus challenges us with new ways of being his disciples, namely in terms of bursting the boundaries, winning through losing, and relatedly, abundance through sacrifice. First, bursting the boundaries that keep out people instead of inviting them in to experience God. Now, there's one thing that puzzled the religious authorities about Jesus' behaviour. They, for one, would strive to keep themselves pure and apart from any association with people who are considered sinners or unclean. But here was Jesus going around and having meals and table fellowship with people like tax collectors. In those days, tax collectors cooperated with the Roman authorities to collect tax from the people. And so they were despised and they were considered traitors in the eyes of the people. Jesus also mixed around with all manner of people who were considered sinners in the eyes of the religious leaders. People who could not cope to conform to the religious standards of the day. In ancient Jewish, in ancient Jewish custom, uh, one did not simply sit down with a stranger to have a meal. That was not how their culture worked, right? Um, table fellowship was strictly reserved for intimate family and friends. Eating with someone implied that the person and you shared the same outlook in life. We have a shared common purpose. We have the same set of values. We belong to the same group or the same clan or the same family. To eat then with somebody ritually unclean and considered a sinner was offensive to the Pharisees. But there goes Jesus eating and drinking with traitors and sinners without seemingly, with, without a care for ritual purity and religious acceptability. Jesus, however, knew the hunger and yearning in the hearts of outcasts and the so-called sinners to know the love of God. The religious leaders had always made them feel dirty, unclean, unacceptable in God's eyes. They were disqualified from God's mercy because they could not keep up to the strict religious code. Jesus did not come to them with more religious code and rules for them, but he came to have a meal with them. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus condoned sin or was easy with loose morals, quite the opposite, actually. But he saw beyond the sin to the heart of a yearning person that cries out to God to be known and forgiven. The religious elite were narrowly focused on making sure that their standards of religious code and interpretations of the law were adhered to, were followed. That was the old wineskins of their mentality, their mindset, their religious practices. Jesus, on the other hand, went out of his way to burst, to, to, to overcome these boundaries of rules and regulation that kept people out of the kingdom. He went out to the sinners and the outcasts. Vic Grigg is a New Zealander church planter who works among the urban poor, and he has to say to this about the middle-class church. He says, the church has given bread to the poor and has kept the bread of life for the middle class. 
his challenge to us is something like this. Huh? The middle-class church is not to do charity, but to be the church for those poor and outcasts as well. You see, to do charity is to give financial aid, but remain unaffected by those who are supposedly helping. To do charity is easy. It's easy to pat ourselves on the back. We have given out something out of the excess abundance and we have done our part. And consciously and or unconsciously, we are treating those that we are supposed to help maybe of a different status or of a different class. That's not being church. To be the church is to sit down and eat with those we are reaching out to, to identify with them, their struggles and their fears, to connect with them with the same grace and goodness we ourselves have received from the Lord. And so the challenge for us is to discern what are the boundaries that the Lord is moving us to break down. What are the social, economic, and professional boundaries that make us separate or disengaged from the wider world? What are the boundaries and practices of our church culture that tend to exclude others? Do we write off and condemn? Are we quick to write off and condemn those whom God is trying to save and forgive? When the church is quick to write off and condemn, we are cut off from God's purposes to save, to restore, and to redeem. The second challenge that Jesus brings to the old wineskins of our lives is in the area of our perception of winning and losing. Our society and culture have trained us to think about what it means to be successful, uh, what it means to stay ahead, what the marks of success looks like. Uh, in, in recent weeks uh, in the US, the FBI and Justice Department have uh, uh, announced that they were conducting this uh, investigation called Operation Varsity Blues. Uh, they were investigating how rich elite uh, families were bribing or collaborating with uh, university administrators uh, to get their kids into Ivy League elite universities in the U.S. And, and these are, um, <laughs> some of them are celebrities, movie stars, uh, some are hedge fund managers, uh, you know, very rich uh, in the financial sector or whatever. And of course, they have an interest to uh, make sure that their kids stay ahead, right? And, and, you know, their kids get in into top university Ivy League standards uh, in terms of university studies. And so they found out that uh, uh, there was one particular entrepreneurial, let's put it this way, entrepreneurial service provider that helped coach students how to write, you know, get, you know applications and get accepted into universities. Uh, but obviously, this entrepreneur went a step further. If, if the, the kid didn't have the necessary grades, right, to enter the Ivy League uh, university, he would advise them how to manipulate the system. You know, somehow, the exam assessments were manipulated. Number two, how they can go in into this university as 
elites uh, or athletes, you know, you are good in basketball or American football or whatever, and they will fake the, the records that, you know, this child is a great athlete in, in, in football or basketball. And, and so even your grades were low, you, you get accepted into this uh, university based on your, your, your sporting abilities. And the coaches for some of these elite universities were bribed as well. They were part of the scheme uh, to bring in these uh, students. For most part, uh, uh, it seems that most of the students were not aware that their parents were cheating to bring them into the universities. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's strange, right? If you claim to be a football star or basketball elite player and you go in and you can't play basketball, that must have been uh, something, right? So, uh, but this has been going on and of course the FBI is clamming down on that. But what are the values? What, what does winning mean? Uh, you know, what does society teach us about winning and getting ahead? The culture of winning and success in our world cannot take in and handle the challenge of Jesus because the very definition of this, his very definition of discipleship is to lose one's life for the sake of the gospel, never mind about winning. But it is in losing one's grip and hold of life on our lives for the sake of the gospel that one saves it and gains eternal life. Similarly, the way we are trying to accumulate advantages for ourselves, even in, in you know, religious life, to achieve prominence or status is to walk on a slippery slope, a slippery slope because Jesus completely overturns this concept of first and last in his kingdom. The first shall be last and the last first. The religious elites of Jesus' day were positioning themselves to be first. They, they were the ones, right, with the strict Coats, they, they, they fasted, they were able to display, you know, their, their religious duties and, and obviously they thought that they're going to be first in God's kingdom. The poor and outcast thought they were no hope. I mean, they were discounted by the religious elites and surely they will be last. They don't even know the scripture well. They don't keep themselves clean. Obviously, they're going to be last. But Jesus says the opposite. The, the first shall be last in God's kingdom and the last first completely overturn the value system of that culture. I dare say to you that even in our own contemporary culture, those whom we think will be first because of, I don't know, skills, riches, status, prominence, success, or whatever, there will be those we think who will be first that in God's kingdom, will turn out last, and those we have discounted or looked down upon will be first in God's eyes. We have to challenge and examine ourselves. What forms our ideas about winning and success? Does our culture teach us more about winning and success rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we teaching our children about winning and being first? Third and lastly, achieving abundance through sacrifice. Jesus brought about the long-promised abundance of life under God's rule, not through military conquests or cohesive power, but by sacrificial suffering on the cross. 
Jesus is the Son of God, but He exercised that sonship through servanthood and suffering. His sacrificial death on the cross brought about the abundance of God's forgiveness and renewed life to the world. The kingship of Jesus drove him to offer his life for his people, for his subjects, for you and me. And his resurrection means that death, even death itself, cannot hold back God's purposes for ourselves. And now Jesus turns to us and calls out to us, pick up your cross and follow after me. The abundance of God's harvest will not come about with the church being triumphant in worldly power and riches. It will come about by a church planted in the midst of suffering and loss. It will come about by a church being a forgiven and a forgiving community that believes in a crucified and risen Messiah. We can only be the true church when we obey not by sight, but by faith in picking up the cross and following Jesus. Doing God's work, God's way, always stretches and challenges our faith. It is not likely that God's most promising plans to work through us will involve us remaining in our comfort zones. It's not likely to happen that way. It will not likely happen at the time which we feel is convenient for us. It will always be inconvenient. I was talking to the other day with members of another church who, uh, in the Northern District who uh, recently had a first-hand experience of uh, the migrant ministry. This is a fast-growing movement where migrant workers from a neighbouring country come in increasing numbers to experience God's love in certain areas of this country, you know, in the, the northern district or northern area is one potential area. But this particular host church uh, was also finding out the challenges and sacrifices it has to take in order to support this ministry. Migrant workers work long hours, and so by the time they come to church, it's already close to about 11 p.m. at night. And so their, their service, their worship, their fellowship uh, goes on until 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. And so, the host church, uh, you know, if you want to support, you want to see the abundance and growth of this ministry, obviously, your people have to stay with them, right, from 11 p.m. to 2 or 3 a.m. And of course, they are worried about how the neighbours will react and uh, so on and so forth. And so, this particular church found out that often the place of witnessing abundance and growth is also a place of inconvenience and sacrifice. What old wineskins are we still holding on to? God's work of bringing about abundant harvest of salvation, healing and deliverance will quite likely challenge the old wineskins of winning and success. It will, it will be, I'm quite sure, burst the boundaries of who we think deserves God's mercy and forgiveness. It will challenge our play-it-safe mindset and comfort zones. But my prayer is that we will be the church that God uses to plant in the midst of our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. That the Lord will plant us 
where there are people hurting and yearning to know the meaning and purpose of life. In places where people have been told that there is no hope for them, for them or their loved ones, it's hopeless for them, that they don't belong or cannot measure up to our modern standards of winning and success. I pray that when God comes to us in the next season of the harvest, that He will not find the old wineskins of complacency and indifference, but new wineskins of vibrant faith and open hearts to receive the new wine of the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.